Wonderful. Uh, so, just wanted to say hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm part of the leadership team. It's really nice to have some visitors today from Kung Shirakan. I hope you have felt welcome. I hope you've enjoyed the fika. Uh, I hope you haven't eaten it all. I have noticed we've got less this week than normal. Uh, it's, it's, it's great to have you with us. Uh, it's so good. We really are praying for everything you guys are doing. And it's brilliant to be able to, we're on mission together, actually, uh, King Shurdekan, Goodfest, and other churches that love Jesus around this, this city and the nation. We're on mission together. And so it's great that you hope you have felt welcome. Uh, we're going to be continuing our series in Daniel, looking at the faithfulness of God, faithful exiles. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it to chapter 5. And the words will in, appear at some point when I start reading. Uh, behind me, but I want to encourage you, do get your Bible out as well. It's good to make sure I'm not going wrong in any places. And chapter 5 happens about, so we, we heard a few weeks ago, Nina spoke brilliantly uh, from chapter 4, and chapter 5 happens about 23 years after chapter 4. So there's, there's a big gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And Daniel is probably around the age of 80, uh, and it's important that we notice that straight away, because when we open up the Bible and we read, like, I mean, you can read what Daniel in about half an hour, it can kind of seem like there's just one big event after another. Like there's, you know, the, there's a, just a, a, a dream that's uh, answered, you know, and he, he explains that, and then there's, you know, there's this, the fiery furnace, and there's another dream. Next week, we're going to hear about the, lion, and the lion's den, and it can seem like it's just event, big events. That's Daniel's life. But what we miss out when we read the book so quickly is the reality of years in between these big events, of faithfulness in the small. And as we, as we live lives, we pray and we hope and we expect God to do some big things. It was great at the weekend away seeing, I can't remember, five legs grow. We saw incredible miracles at the weekend away. Just amazing. But we don't necessarily live every day expecting to see legs grow. And we live every day in faithfulness to what God has called us to, in the places that he has placed us, in the family that he has placed us, on the street that he has placed us. And we expect and we pray for the big events, but we live in the reality that actually we're faithful, whether we see like big things or actually whether, um, actually we don't necessarily see things, but we, God calls us to be a faithful people. And Daniel is a guy who's living faithfully in the in-between in the 23 years between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. And his last conversation that we heard about in Daniel 4 was um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, coming to Daniel and, and having this dream of this big tree where birds are kind of nesting and, and then the tree gets chopped down and he finds Daniel who then explains to him, this, this, this is what it's all about. You, you are the tree, Nebuchadnezzar. But one day, God is going to, going to be something that happens in your life, and God's going to cut down the tree. And for a period of time, you are going to be, yeah, like an animal. You are going to be struggling until you repent, until you turn back to God, and then he will restore everything that he has given to you. And, that, and um, Nebuchadnezzar is about a year later after this dream. He's walking along these incredibly big city walls, very, very impressive and he's looking over his city and he says, look what I have done. Great Nebuchadnezzar. And in that moment, God strikes him down. And for a period of time, the dream 
all becomes true. He lives as an animal until he realizes that God is great, that he isn't great, that God has done it, not Nebuchadnezzar. And we read in verse 37 uh, that Nebuchadnezzar kind of, we think that he came, it's this journey of salvation. And right at the end of chapter 4, just before his death, he says in verse 37, I praise, I exalt, I give glory to the God of heaven. Chapter 4, verse 37. And then, silence. Nebuchadnezzar, gone 23 years later, enter King Belshazzar. So if you've got your Bibles open to Daniel, chapter 5, we're going to read from verse 1, controversially. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I wonder if you've ever been watching TV and you've shouted at the TV, like, don't do that! You know, like someone's maybe being chased by a murderer or something, and instead of sort of like running to a place where there's light and people and safety, they decide, oh, that dark alley with no doors, that is the direction I'm going to go. And you're like, what are you doing? Don't do that. And I guess the reason they don't go to the people is because the films would be very short, if like kind of you like, but it's annoying anyway, right? And as we read these first few verses, you kind of, you get this impression, like, King Belshazzar, what are you doing? Don't do that. These first few verses, we kind of, if you've ever been to an afterwork, you kind of times that by a hundred. This is an afterwork gone wild. They're drinking, they're, but not just like having a nice glass of wine. They're all drunk. They, the king brings in at this moment. It, something that you wouldn't normally do, something that's not protocol. He brings in all the wives, all the concubines. So not only is this incredible like drinking going on, but actually there's this scene of sensuality, almost sexuality. It's just there's women everywhere, there's drink everywhere. It's a real, it's a real mess. And it, it's the reality is that king, the king Belshazzar is saying this, look at me in front of a thousand people. Look at how impressive I am. Look at all my wives, look at all my concubines. And then... He does something that King Nebuchadnezzar didn't do. He goes to the sacred, the holy items that originally they got out. We read that chapter 1, right at the beginning in Daniel. They get out of the the temple in Jerusalem. They bring out these these, uh, holy items, these sacred items. These items, holy means set apart. These items, there's a big pile of items, and suddenly they set some apart, and those are the sacred items, and they use them for very sacred things, very holy things. And, and the Babylonians were aware of the reality, of the importance of these items for the temple, so much so that King Nebuchadnezzar, he took them, but he didn't use them. He didn't melt the gold down, which would have been worth a lot. He kept them and he stored them. King Belshazzar, bring them. 
bring the goblets, bring those sacred items. And he doesn't just bring them to sort of like put on display somewhere, just like marvel. He pours a glass of wine in them, and he raises it up. And he raises a toast to the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and iron. He raises a toast. And effectively, what he is doing is he is saying, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at how wonderful I am. I am basically, he stands next to God and he says, I am greater than you. Don't do that. It's a massive moment. Don't do that. It's an act of spiritual defiance. It's an act of saying, I rule. It's an act of saying, I am greater than you, God. And it's similar to the Nebuchadnezzar moment when he's on the wall and he's looking down over the city and he's saying, look how great I am. It's a moment that Belshazzar looks at himself and says, I am greater than God. Look at me. Let's continue reading. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. And then, over the next few verses, Daniel gets brought before the king who promises him riches and clothes and power if he can explain these words that have suddenly appeared on the wall. And if we continue reading from verse 17. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts you for, your, for yourself and, keep, and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness, glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, He was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, stone, which cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Doesn't that just describe the culture that we live in at the moment? It's horrific and so sad. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Mene, God 
has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided, divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. The head of gold becomes the chest of silver from Daniel 2. I've, I think I've shared this story before, but you only have so many stories, so... <laughs> uh, I bought a uh, smoke grenade uh, when I was a teenager, and you know, like from so we were doing paintballing, bought a smoke grenade, and instead of letting it off at the paintball place, we decided to bring it to our house, to mum and dad's house, not my house, to be fair. Don't know if you know this. Um, and we were doing a bit of a renovation, and there was no windows at that moment, and there was a door with no door handle. And what we thought would be a good idea was to shut the door so we couldn't get out, then put the grenade in the middle of the room and light it. And now for the first 30 seconds, we were you know, having the time of our lives. It was absolutely super fun. Everyone was dancing around the smoke grenade, having a great time doing you know, all the dance moves. And then suddenly, the room started to fill with smoke, which is kind of like we hadn't put those two together. And what was a real joyful experience, very, very, very quickly became an experience where we thought we might actually die in this room. And panic sort of spread out, like the fear, Everyone was terrified. My, my, my friend uh, got a ladder and climbed to the top of the ladder, thinking that would be a good thing, when we all know that if the room is full of smoke, you go as low as possible. He's like, I'll go to the top. But, you know, it was a panic. Um, it wasn't the sharpest tool in the box either. But here in this story, we have sort of this moment of incredible joy, and, and you know, they're having sort of like a party, and then suddenly the mood changes in a second. The king, the most powerful king in the earth, he goes pale. And the, and the author says this three times. He goes pale, he goes pale, he goes pale. He's really, really making a point here. His knees are knocking together. We're talking about one of the most powerful men on earth. Suddenly, the mood changes. And then Daniel gets brought in. 80-year-old Daniel, who probably walks similar to I am at the moment, because I ran the Varvet yesterday, kind of like pain in both the knees, the legs are hurting. But he kind of walks in, and you can imagine him walking into this scene, drinking, scantily clad women everywhere, into the palace full of sort of gold and all sorts of impressive, like, man-made things. He looks to the king, arguably one of the most powerful men, who's pale, whose knees are knocking together, who is in dread, who is scared. And he walks past him. And he goes up to this writing on the wall. Menna, menna, tekel, and parson. And then he, he explains to the king what's going on. You've been numbered. You've been weighed. And your kingdom is divided. God has numbered the days of your kingdom. You've been weighed and found wanting. And your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
And again, at this moment, we've got to see the faithfulness of Daniel. In the midst of all that that's kind of going on around him, he says what God calls him to say. He doesn't hold back. And what he says is heartbreaking, really. You've been numbered, you've been weighed, your kingdom's divided, it's gone. There is a Greek historian called Herodotus who writes of the capture of Babylon a few centuries later. And he says this, The Persians took them unawares, and because of the great size of the city, those in the outer parts were overcome. But the inhabitants of the middle part knew nothing of it. This is a historian writing about the capture of Babylon. This has nothing to do with Scripture. This is outside of that. Those in the middle part knew nothing of it. All this time, they were drinking, dancing, and celebrating a holiday, which happens for them. Until they learned the truth only too well. So within the space of one verse, verse 31, the greatest empire on planet Earth no longer exists. And we read, don't we, verse 21, Daniel says, The most high God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets it over whom he sets over it whom he will. Doesn't this just absolutely underline and highlight that point? King Belshazzar isn't in control. God is in control and he decides the most high God rules. So all this apparent power and wisdom and impressive material items, the money, is like, it's just like chaff in the wind. Again, we read that in Daniel 2. It's just nothing, just blows. At the name of God, as God just, just takes down this kingdom and then rises another one. And Belshazzar had, he, he just, he, he tragically just got it completely wrong. He had his forefather, his father, he's actually the four, he's not literally his dad, but one before him, Nebuchadnezzar. He had him to listen to and to look at and know what had happened to him. I'm not going to make that mistake. Yet he makes exactly the same mistakes. He tragically gets it completely wrong. And instead of honoring God, he honors gods of gold and silver and stone and iron, brass. And Daniel sees that. He sees straight through him. It says in verse 23, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which do not see, do not hear, do not know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you've not honored him. Belshazzar was weighed and he was found wanting. Just put yourself in Belshazzar's shoes. What words to hear. You've been weighed, but you're found wanting. You're not good enough. You've been honoring the wrong gods. You failed to see the God who gives you life, who gives you breath. You've been weighed and you've been found wanting. Friends, God is good. We love worshipping him. We love singing of his character. God is a God who is slow to anger. God is a God who is full of grace. He, he is love. He is full of mercy. We heard last week Albin brilliantly speaking about worship. And he said, he's imminent. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's imminent. He comes to us. He's close. Yet he is also transcendent. He is also other. He is holy. 
He is set apart. There's angels, the seraphim, which literally, their job is to say, is to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, three times, means very holy. They didn't, didn't have very in those days. So it's very holy is the Lord God Almighty, their job. And yet, they don't even, they can't even see. They have two wings to cover their eyes because they can't see his holiness. I tell you what, if we were to see the seraphim, we would fall apart. Yet, they can't even look at God because of his holiness. He is other, he is set apart. And, friends, another character of who God is is that he is the judge. It's a word that we probably don't use so often. Then we could all say we hear the word love. God is love. God is graceful. God is merciful. We hear those words a lot. We don't so often worship and sing songs of his judgment, that part of his character. But it's really important that we hear. We've got to preach what it says in the scripture. And here we see that God is a judge. Psalm 75, 7 says this. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. That is literally exactly what he does in that moment. Puts down Belshazzar and brings up Darius. God is a God who is a judge, putting down one and lifting another. Paul, in his his letter to the Galatians, in 6 verse 7, said, Do not mock God. Don't joke with God. Belshazzar, in raising his vitamin well, his, his, the goblets, he mocked God. He said, I'm greater than you. It's that don't do it moment. Don't take God lightly, Belshazzar. And we wonderfully get called friends of God, but he is not our mate. Do you see the difference? It's really important that we understand and that we see this and that there really is no way to say this lightly. But friends, we must watch ourselves. We must be aware of the judgment of God. And we must see it in this passage. Otherwise, what happens is we end up with cheap grace. We end up with grace that doesn't cost anything. Where we no longer value what grace was, caught with, uh, was bought with, which was the blood of Christ. If we just mess about in sin, where we almost uh, we can develop a flippant attitude to what God is calling us to do, to the will of God, and who He's calling us to. Ah, it's okay. He'll forgive me. It's grace. It's very, very dangerous. And we see that. I, uh, we, we had uh, Alfred's, my oldest son's, seven-year-old son's, Utwecklings Samtal, a couple of weeks ago, and, and it was wonderful. So, no judgment there. Uh, he, he was just, you know, the teacher was asked, he's doing really well. It reminded me of my Utwecklings Samtal, my development talks when I was a teenager, which weren't so wonderful. And I literally, I, I remember, year after year, development talk after development, development talk, going around, and you had subject teachers, so you would sit at their table for a minute, you go up and you go science, and then you kind of go maths, and you get nice big you know, thighs because you're going around sitting up. Everyone, without doubt, said the same thing. Everyone. Oh, he's, he's quite clever, but he needs to apply himself. He needs to apply himself. And I thought, ah, next year, 
next term, next year. Literally, I, I don't know how many times I heard, oh, he's, he, he's got it in him, but he needs to apply himself. Then the exams came, and I was sat in a room, and there was, uh, there were, um, like, you know, um, I opened my exam page, and I couldn't do anything. I could just about fill in my name, and that was it. And there was teachers standing over me, looking at me, looking at what I was doing. But they couldn't help me, because I missed my chance. And I, um, obviously the exam results came in, and they weren't impressive. Uh, and I wasn't able to continue my schooling. And we tried, I went with Dad, and we, <laughs> we tried to go and say, look, please, I will, be, I will apply myself. And they were like, nah, you've had your chance. I didn't listen to the warnings. When exam day came, I missed my chance. And God is a God full of grace. He absolutely is. He is a grace-filled God. And he gives us chances. And he gives us chances. Nebuchadnezzar, we read about that in in chapter 4, actually there's a year of kind of like where, God, where Nebuchadnezzar could have turned around before what God said was going to happen happened. He's a God of grace. But we don't take his grace for grant, granted. So important that we hear this. I'm sorry, it is a, it's a different message to what I'd normally bring. I've still got tears, that's the same. <laughs> but God is a God of grace and a God who judges. And the first thing I want us to see about God's judgment is in, is in the bigger picture of salvation. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of us are loud sinners like Belshazzar. Okay? We're loud sinners. It's obvious. There's an obvious sin. Others of us are more crafty, quiet sinners. But whether you're a loud sinner or a quiet sinner, you're a sinner. And all sin separates us from God. And Jesus, we read this in John 12, came not to judge, but to save. And so Jesus comes, not as judge, but Jesus comes, he gets sent to earth to save. The one, the only one who can judge, doesn't come to judge he comes to save. The only one who could look on, kind of get up on the city walls and say, look at what I have done, becomes obedient to the point of death. We heard from Pete, Romans 8, Jesus intercedes on our behalf to the Father. Jesus comes to save us. And the reality is, friends, however good you think you are, you really are that bad. You're not that impressive. I'm just going to throw that out there. Whatever you think of yourself. And we might be impressive to one another. There may be a couple of us that say, oh, really nice. There's some people who you know just are really nice guys. 
And he's like, such a nice, I wish I could be that nice, but I'm just not. <laughs> you're like, you feel warm and like you've had a cuddle, even though you've not had a cuddle. Really nice guy. It might be impressive to each other. We're not impressive to God at all. We really aren't. And if the writing on the wall was to appear behind me of what you have done in your life, what you're about to do, what you're going to do in your life, it wouldn't be good reading. It wouldn't be. Even if it was good things, it wouldn't be good enough. And the same words come to us. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Friends, we've all been weighed in the balances. Every one of us. And we've been found wanting. We're not impressive. We are not good enough. What words to hear. You weigh nothing. But Jesus does. And what we do as we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as he takes our place, we allow his blood to kind of wash the writing on the wall off. Because he comes to save us. Because he comes to wash us clean. So it's not about our good deeds. It's not about what we've done, what we haven't done. It's all about Jesus. It's about him. It's about his blood. It washes us clean so that we, found, we get found accepted. That we get found loved. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. So it's God's judgment within the bigger picture of salvation. Hallelujah. We can sing songs. We can get excited. I love it. I love getting excited during worship. You see me jumping around completely out of time. It's, but it's brilliant, right? Jesus' death, his resurrection, his blood shed for us means that we get accepted, whatever. We can have a brilliant day. We can have a terrible day. We can have a brilliant life, terrible life. It's, it's not about us. We don't weigh anything. The best deeds that you can do weigh absolutely nothing in the scales. But Jesus does, and he takes your place on those scales. Wow, it's the gospel. It's amazing. It's brilliant. We can be happy about that. But the second thing, we just see his uh, judgment in the bigger story of salvation, but we also need to see his judgment in our, in our daily lives, in our daily walk as believers. And as I said, we're, we're a church that loves grace. We kind of started, I think it was even in the UK, Nina, my wife, had this prophetic picture about Sweden being... Um, uh, bound up in chains and this uh, Braveheart, if you've seen Braveheart, this freedom shout as the chains break. We love grace. It's one of our five Gs, our DNA values. We have five Gs and one of them is grace. And there'll be a prize if anyone can get the other four. I, and I will not get that prize. But we, we, we love grace. We absolutely do. But what it doesn't mean is kind of, oh, you do you. That's not what grace means. Doesn't mean that the culture that we live in today is this that the individual is the highest authority. As long as you don't hurt someone, we'll probably draw the line there, which is interesting. Maybe one day that line will be taken away as well, because there is a slippery slope. But we'll draw the line there for the moment. You do you, you're your highest you know, authority, kind of as long as you don't hurt anyone. That's not what God is calling us to be. That is not the people that God is calling us to be. Grace, Paul writes, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And as we read this passage in Daniel 5, it's quite easy to make excuses 
of the passage. Well, Belshazzar, he's, he's not Christian. He, he wasn't one of God's people. He wasn't an Israelite. It's a different culture. God's going to be different to us, right? It's a different time. This is what God says to his people, his people, the Israelites, in Psalm 50. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God. There is a call for us, and again, this is an unpopular message these days, but there is a call on the church to walk and live in repentance. When people who declare themselves to be uh, God's people, the church, when we walk in unrepentant sin, when we don't care about what God says because we just, we're being ourselves, we're our own individual highest authority, when we do that, God says this, be careful. Be careful. Be careful, lest you mock God. You know, when does it become hip- hypocrisy on a, on a Sunday morning, standing, thank you, thank you for the cross, Lord, thank you for the price you paid, you've, you know, you've delivered me from sin, thank you, you can take communion now, and then on Monday morning, stepping right back into unrepentant sin, when does it become hypocrisy? And God says, careful. And we see that in the church in Corinth. There's a couple of examples in Corinth, but one is around the Lord's table, around um, communion, where the wealthy, because they work shorter hours, they get there earlier, they kind of eat everything, they drink everything, some of them are even getting drunk, and then the poor who work longer hours get there and there's nothing there. And the whole point of communion in uniting one another together kind of get, is like the opposite is happening. There's disunity, because there's drunks and there's people like upset and this is what Paul says. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, this is 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a seriousness to God. It's important that we take him seriously. I remember, I've heard the story, when I was a child and uh, we were planting a church, in, we were part of a church plant in a small village uh, just south of London and suddenly a whole bunch of people came from a different church and joined, joined us and the reason they did was because uh, tragically the, the guy who was leading had just dropped dead one day, completely unexpected and yeah, and he died. And w- actually what when we started to find out what had happened, what it was was this. There was, there was a meeting shortly after his death where the church kind of said, okay, how, how are we going to go forward in this? Like, what's the kind of lead? The lead guy's not with us anymore. What's the plan? And as that meeting was going on, there was a lady oh, who stood up. And she said, I've just got something to say. Just, just from the crowd, one person just stood up. I've got something to confess. I was sleeping with that guy sat down. Then another lady stood up. I also was sleeping with him. Down. And one after another, a bunch of ladies stood up 
I said I was also sleeping with that guy. And say what you want, but that's the judgment of God. Now, you trust and believe that that guy is saved and is with Jesus. But it's almost like Jesus is like, you know, I'm calling you home now. Now, you're, you're making enough mess down there. I'm calling you home. And there's this really, kind of, I can imagine, real tragic conversation that they could have, Jesus and this man. Like, what did you do with what I gave you? I, I, I gave you this. I gave you a portion. What did you do with it? Absolutely tragic. And to us, we're, we're saved by and we live by grace. It is all of grace. But may I encourage you, do not take God lightly. If you're living in unrepentant sin, be careful. Come to Jesus. And God's, we read this in Romans too, that God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. So in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity as we take from the Lord's table, as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we're going to have an opportunity to again come and say, sorry, this is what I've been doing. Forgive me. And we turn from that. We take it seriously. It's heavy stuff, but it's important. And I want us to hear the warning. So how do we land? Well, first of all, look to Jesus. Don't look to yourself. You weigh nothing. Sorry, that can be the quotes on the uh, Instagram (laughs) this week. You weigh nothing. But Jesus does. He came to save, not to judge. And so we get to boldly approach the throne of grace because of Jesus. And so that writing on the wall disappears because of his blood washing it clean. Jesus has won the victory. I wonder, do you know Jesus this morning? Perhaps you've been coming to church for a while. It's great to have you with us. And you've, you've been hearing and you kind of feel that you may be getting to know Jesus a little bit, but you don't really know him. You haven't really accepted him as your Lord and Savior. You haven't said, no, I want you to take my place on the scales. There's an opportunity to do that this morning. Come to Jesus. Come to the cross. Repent. Turn around. Get to know Jesus. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. And the second thing for all of us, let's, let's just be careful how we walk. Let's be wise amongst the unwise. Let's hear that warning. Not that God is going to strike us down if we sin, but we hear the warning that we walk wisely in a generation of unwise. I, I, I really felt God highlight this phrase uh, from... I've got to say the name again, Herod, Herodotus, Herodotus. Uh, and it, it was this, they were dancing and celebrating a holiday which happened to fall then until they learned the truth only too well. You can imagine this party with Belshazzar, dancing, celebrating a holiday, and then suddenly, and it, I just feel our culture, and I, think, and I think we so often are tempted to get infiltrated by culture, but we bury our heads in the sand, if you like. We dance on the grave. We hear the warnings, but we think like I did. Ah, but we'll, we'll do that tomorrow. We'll do that the next time. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't wait. If there's something in your life that needs to change, 
Change it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask, Holy Spirit, help us, but change it. Come to Jesus, come to the cross, repent. It's, it's tragic to hear the warnings of grace and then just do nothing about it. I wonder if I could invite the band up. Paul says uh, in Ephesians 5, don't get drunk on wine. Don't walk as wise among the unwise. Don't be foolish. And he says, don't get drunk on wine. The Bible never says the drinking is a problem, but it regularly says that being drunk is a problem. Just to throw that one in there. But Paul says, don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Singing to one another, giving thanks to God. What for? For Jesus. As we gather on a Sunday morning and throughout the week, as we worship, what we're doing is we're encouraging one another in Jesus. We're not getting drunk on wine. That leads to all sorts. We're getting drunk on the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. And we sing to God. We give thanks to God with each other for Jesus. So can we stand up? We're going we're gonna to sing a song, and we're going to thank God for what he has done amongst us. We're going to thank God for Jesus. And we say this all the time. It really isn't the band. It's all of us together. Eric is doing the chairs at the moment, and we really want them in a circle so that we can sing to one another words of encouragement. It's all about Jesus. We weigh nothing. Jesus weighs everything. And so we thank God for Jesus. And we're just going to sing a song together. And then after that, we'll have a moment to, to take communion.